0: Exodus 7, verses 14 through 24. Let me just say by way of preface that the book of Exodus is really a difficult book to structure for a sermon series. Um, Many, many pastors and theologians do not preach all of the plagues. In fact, many of them lump all of them together and just do one sermon as a sort of an overview. Um, I am not quite sure what I'm going to do. We're going to look at the first of the plagues tonight. And we're going to focus on that, and then um, we will try to decide what we're going to do going forward. I know that we'll definitely look at the ninth and the 10th plagues, but I I certainly don't want to drag out eight weeks of redundancy. God sends a plague. Pharaoh hardens his heart. That's sort of the pattern, over and over and over. So we'll try to naturally follow that out. I may have to turn this off, y'all. It's scratchy. But... um, We are looking tonight at Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, and we're going to read down to verse 24. Now the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord... And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in and literally in the Hebrew, it does not say vessels. It says even in wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the distinctive features in redemptive history is that the Bible is full of what we might call water judgments. You'll remember that at creation, God brought life and blessing out of the waters. Remember the earth at creation was covered with water, and God separated the waters, and the dry land appeared, and then God called trees and shrubs into existence, and God created a habitable world where he was going to dwell with man, and man was going to be blessed by him. But, you know, what happens after the fall is men become increasingly wicked that God decides he's going to destroy the world in the days of Noah. And that world that he had created out of the waters, he again covered with the waters and he destroyed all mankind and every living thing except for Noah. And those eight with him. And then after the flood, you'll remember that God put a rainbow in the sky And said, I'll never again destroy man as I've done, and this is my sign. And to this day, God has never sent a worldwide water judgment like he did in the days of Noah. On the way over here, I was driving out of our neighborhood, and I was thinking about this first miracle, this first sign that we're going to look at, this water judgment, and right in the middle of my neighborhood was a huge rainbow. And I thought, what a kindness from God that even as these are going to serve as signs of his judgment in this first one, a water judgment, just like the water judgment of the flood on a smaller scale. And you know that there's going to be another water judgment when God destroys Egypt in the Red Sea, when when the waters part and the dry land appears just like at creation. And Israel's going to come out as a new creation, but God's going to cover the earth again and he's going to destroy his enemies in a water judgment. And this is a precursor to that. And yet, even as that's. Uh, serves as a sign of what God was going to do, yet God has put that bow in the sky as a sign that he's not going to destroy the world in the same way as he had done in the days of Noah. Now, I tell you that because as we come to look at the ten plagues in detail, in some sense, consider them, um, none none of these are anywhere called plagues. We call them plagues because we know what a plague is. They are called signs and wonders. They are signs and wonders that God is going to show through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh in order to do a a, a number of things, in order to fulfill a number of his purposes. God has a multiplicity of purposes at work. It's not just to deliver Israel. It is that. It's not just to call Pharaoh to repentance. It is that. It is not just to show his power. It is that, and it is not just to make his name known. It is all of those things. And so as we consider this first of the ten plagues tonight, I want us to consider just three things. I want us to consider first the purpose of the plagues. Then I want us to consider the nature of the first plague. And then I want us to consider Pharaoh's response to the first plague, the purpose of the plagues, the nature of the first plague, And Pharaoh's response to the plague. Well, you'll notice there as now Moses and Aaron have gone and they have performed that first um, sign for Pharaoh and throwing down the serpent and, and showing God's power, turning the rod into the serpent. And yet Pharaoh has hardened his heart, just like God said he was going to do. Now the Lord is going to send Moses and Aaron back. The Lord says to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent, and you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. Now... Um, as I noticed, noted already, the, the purpose of the plagues is that they're signs of judicial punishment. Pharaoh has hardened his heart, so God is going to give a sign of judicial punishment. Um, God is giving Pharaoh a foretaste of what he ultimately will do, and yet he's doing it on a small scale. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but... Um, In those judgments that God sends on on Egypt, they are not massive judgments. They are very small sign-wonder judgments in which God is giving a little foretaste of the judicial punishment that ultimately is reserved for the wicked for all eternity in hell. God is giving a very little judgment sign... And he's doing it in a very specific way. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Why is the first judgment sign a judgment sign of water to blood in the Nile? But remember, a previous pharaoh had commanded the death of all the baby boys in in Israel, in Egypt, in the Nile. God is essentially saying to pharaoh, I am going to do to you what you have done to my people. And it's looking forward God is essentially saying, though he doesn't tell Pharaoh this, it's looking forward to what he's going to do when he sheds their blood in the Red Sea. So God is pointing back and saying, because of what you've done to my people, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do to you exactly what you did to my people. Um, And yet it's also a sign of divine mercy. Now you may say, wait, how is it a sign of divine mercy? Well, God is not destroying Pharaoh yet. God is giving this sign of judgment because, in essence, he is offering Pharaoh the the hope of mercy. If Pharaoh would just see if this God can turn water into blood, what can this God do to me? I better turn to this God in repentance and faith. That is always the purpose when God sends judgments. And I know it is wildly unpopular to say that natural disasters may be a sign of God's judgment. Maybe. Maybe. It is wildly unpopular to say anything may be a sign of God's judgment. And yet, as I noted this this evening in the book of Revelation, that that there is a parallel between the language of the, the plagues in Egypt and the judgments that God is sending in the new covenant era on the face of the earth. And the purpose is that men and women and boys and girls would seek him in the hope of finding his mercy and coming to know Christ. Isn't that interesting? God is essentially holding out the hope of mercy and the gospel to Pharaoh. Now, we know Pharaoh is going to harden his heart. We know God's going to harden his heart. We know from Romans 9 that ultimately God is actively hardening pharaoh that he has raised pharaoh up to destroy him and there is a principle here of that mystery of god's sovereignty man's responsibility both are taught in scripture and yet there's a very real sense where god is extending to pharaoh the hope of mercy isn't that interesting how good this god is and how long suffering this god is this is the first of 10 plagues I was thinking about that you know the number 10 in scripture like 7 is complete completion wholeness perfection God is essentially showing even in sending these judgment signs just how long suffering he is isn't that interesting and yet Pharaoh like so many is going to reject God's extensions and offers of mercy and he's going to continually harden his heart no matter how much God is plaguing and afflicting Pharaoh and Egypt And even at the end, everyone in the land of Egypt. Now, the purpose of the plagues is not just to give signs of judicial punishment and signs of divine mercy. They are a revelation of God's name and power. This is really interesting. At the beginning of the book, you you get the sense, and you've got to read Exodus as, as a big, whole narrative. At the beginning of Exodus, it's as if no one really knows who the Lord is. They don't know his name. God even says he had not yet revealed himself as Yahweh, the covenant Lord. He had gone by El Shaddai, God Almighty, remember, but he begins now to reveal himself under that covenant name, Yahweh. And and the name of the Lord is so central in this book so that when we come to chapter 34 and Moses says, show me your glory, God says, you can't see my face. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. You can see my hinder parts. And the Lord passes by him and he declares, Moses said, show me your glory. And the Lord declares, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Um, he He is... He is revealing his attributes, his character, who he is, what he's like. And there's this progressive development in Exodus from when God first tells Moses, tell the people of Israel, Yahweh, I am sent you, to the revelation of his attributes to Moses in chapter 34, that in the plagues that he's sending on Egypt, notice this, notice this. Thus says the Lord, verse 17 by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Thus shall the Lord, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. With the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. So God is manifesting his power, his wisdom, his justice, he is manifesting his attributes and he's manifesting his name. Now that's important because the other purpose of the plagues is that God is overthrowing Egypt's false deities. Now we know that from chapter 12 verse 12. Listen to this. In chapter 12 verse 12, the Lord says, "I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. This is the final plague. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh." So, in making his name known and in these plagues on creation, we're going to talk about this in a moment. God is essentially asserting that he is the true and living God and that all the gods of Egypt are idols. God is going to overthrow the Egyptian deities. Um, James Boyce put it this way he said, There were about 80 major deities in Egypt, all clustered around three great natural forces of Egyptian life the Nile River the land, and the sky. They were all formed and positioned around the river, the land, and the sky. You have to listen very carefully. Boyce says, It does not surprise us then that the plagues God sent against Egypt in this historic battle followed these three force patterns. The first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile, the water to blood and the frogs. The next four were against the land gods, the final four were against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn. So, see, the purpose of God is not just to deliver his people to create a worshiping community. He is doing that. He is redeeming them and drawing them out. He is sending sign judgments, signs of divine mercy. He is revealing his name and power, and he is overthrowing and conquering all of Egypt's false gods in the plagues. That's the purpose of Of the plagues. Now, I want us to consider secondly the nature of the first plague. Now, the Nile River is the longest river in the world. I don't know if you know that. It's 4,100 miles long, and it was revered as the most important thing in Egypt. In fact, the Egyptians believed that the gods of the Nile rivers uh, caused the Nile to give them the land, that it was more important than the land, that it was the place of sustenance. Uh, Phil Rykin says this there were three river gods of the Egyptians, gods they worshipped and served um, Osiris, Nu, and especially Hapi. For centuries, the Egyptians praised Hapi as the giver of life, the lord of sustenance, the one who causes the whole land to live through his provisions. This is detailed in Egyptian writing. They believed that the river gave them everything they needed for life. They got water from the river. Their crops were watered from the river. They got fish and, and other uh, sources of food from the river. They believed that the river was the most important life-giving thing that they had. And so it's fitting that God would strike that most valuable thing at the outset and show them that they have no sustenance, that they have no provisions outside of him. Um, you know, it's interesting when the psalmist reflects on this first plague, there's two psalms where this plague is mentioned. Psalm seventy eight, forty four, the psalmist says, He that is God turned their rivers to blood, they could not drink from their streams. You see, he's taking away their provisions they could not drink from their streams and then Psalm 105:29 he turned their waters into blood causing their fish to die you see the psalmist understands what god is doing god is saying i am the god of provision i am the god of life and sustenance everything you have comes from me it doesn't come from this river and very interesting and i want to press this home tonight you know whenever men and women boys and girls turn to idols and we all do we have sophisticated idols they had primitive idols God has a way of taking away what we think our idols give to us. Um, he has a way, when he finally comes in judgments, in taking away uh, what we trust in. You know, I've, I've long thought, how long until America falls? In this country, trust in money, provision, wealth. Um, and, and it's not going to last forever. It's not going to last forever. It's a matter of time before God... Brings every nation to an end. And God deals with everyone according to their idolatry. Uh, God is dealing with Egypt according to their idols. And Phil Reichen actually says this. To understand how distressing this was for the Egyptians, one has to appreciate how dependent they were on the Nile. The river was their lifeblood, the basis for their entire civilization. Um, You know, we can't even begin to understand how atrocious it would have been to smell blood throughout all the land of Egypt emanating off of that river. Now, I mentioned in the reading that the Hebrew does not say that the water became blood even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone, because when we read that, it sounds as if uh, the Egyptians had uh, vessels in which they kept water, and that when Moses struck the Nile, it not only turned to blood, but all the water in all of Egypt turned to blood. And that's how I always understood that. But actually, it says that there was blood in all their wood and their stone. Now, in the Old Testament, the words wood and stone, when they were coupled together, almost always refer to idols. And there are theologians that have pointed out that um, whenever idol makers were making their idols, they would take them after they had carved them, they would go into the river, into the Nile, they would consecrate them, they would wash them. And in doing that, their idols at this period came back covered in the blood of the judgment that God had sent on their false gods. It's actually fascinating. Now, I think that that's probably the case. They could have had water in these vessels that turned to blood. I think it's probably the case that these are references to their idols being covered with blood because when Pharaoh summons his magicians, they go and get water and they turn it to blood. Well, how do they have water if all the water turned to blood? So even there in that intimation, God is showing that he has come to overthrow and to conquer in this first plague um, against the Egyptians. You know, very interesting i i've probably pointed this out to you that moses's first plague is a judgment sign of water to blood jesus's first plague is a mercy sign of water to wine that's intentional you're meant to see that contrast jesus is the greater moses who takes the judgment on himself And now in the New Covenant era, God's judgments matriculate. Isn't that beautiful? The same God that turned water to blood turns water to wine. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the one who's making his name known. Um, Even though we deserve the same judgment that Pharaoh and the Egyptians deserve. And that's a very important point. We deserve the same judgment they deserve. How do I know that? Because the ninth plague, the darkness covering the land included Israel. And the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, would have fallen on Israel just like it did on Egypt. You see, Israel's not supposed to think, I don't deserve this judgment. But the beauty of the gospel is, because of what Christ does at the cross, the judgment we deserve is turned into blessing because of his saving work. Isn't that amazing? We're meant to be astonished by that Well, I want us to consider just briefly now Pharaoh's response to the plague. Now, Pharaoh calls his magicians. He doesn't learn his lesson. He doesn't realize who can turn this great river into blood. He should have instantly known that. Everything had died. All the sustenance was taken away. He should have bowed his face to the earth and worshiped the God of heaven and earth. And instead, notice how hard-hearted and defiant and unbelieving he is We are told that even though the fish in the Nile died, the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, verse 22. But Pharaoh had called his servants, and the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Now, I remember as a young Christian reading the plagues, and I think it was the account with the frogs. I think I missed it here, but it's it's true throughout all of them. Every time Pharaoh calls his magicians and they by satanic power m- do a counterfeit version of what God has done, the irony is it always makes the plague worse. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Instead of making anything better, they're only adding to it. And and you know someone pointed out to me once it's very interesting because it is satanic opposition and this is the god of heaven and earth in conflict with the evil one behind pharaoh and behind the magicians this is a cosmic battle before between the triune god and 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 the evil one and every time this is beautiful every time the evil one tries to thwart god's plans It only comes back to have God turn it against him. And that is nowhere seen as clearly as on the cross. You see, Satan thought he was destroying the Lord Jesus. And it was on the cross that God was crushing the head of the evil one. Isn't that beautiful? No matter what Satan tries to do, God turns it against him. Um You know the old saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. How many people have come to faith in Christ because they've seen believers suffer for the Lord Jesus? Satan thinks he's destroying. God is always giving resurrections and using whatever weapons Satan tries against him for his destruction. It's beautiful. Now, Pharaoh has hardened his heart. We have seen that. We're going to see that recurrently in every one of the plagues. Pharaoh hardens his heart. He further hardens his heart. He is constantly defiant. By the way, that is a great warning to us because it's possible for us to harden our hearts against God, against his overtures of grace, against his extensions of mercy, against his rebukes and his chastisements. And so we need to really examine, am am I hardening my heart to the Lord or am I softening it? Am I crying out? With David, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, you will not not turn away. God loves a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Um, We should be in the habit of asking the Lord, Lord, give me a soft heart. Give me a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Make me to grieve over my sin. Make me sensitive to what you're doing in my life. I need a lot more of that in my life. And Pharaoh serves as an example of that warning. And I want us to see something else here. Very interesting. Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, verse 22, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now listen to this, verse 23. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Now this is the most fascinating part. Of Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh's heart is so hardened against the Lord that he doesn't even care about the suffering of his own people. Isn't that interesting? Notice the language. Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He turned and went into his house where he had provisions, where he had luxuries, where he felt safe from the plague of God. He didn't care for his people. Notice the juxtaposition. He did not even take this to heart. The Egyptians, however, dug all along the Nile for water to drink. Isn't that interesting? That when men and women and boys and girls harden their hearts against the Lord, they grow cold toward others. Jesus says this, doesn't he? He says, where lawlessness increases, the love of the many grows cold. We heard this morning in the sermon that the Lord Jesus says, A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. What, what softens a sinner's heart? There's only one thing that will ever soften my heart and your heart, that will ever keep us from hardening our hearts in unrepentant hardness like Pharaoh, and that is the the dying love of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? No plague. No judgment that God sends will ever change the heart of a man or a woman or a boy and girl. That's the whole point of Revelation. When God sends the judgments, he says, even though he sent them, they would not repent of their sexual immorality and their murder and their idolatry. They would not repent because no amount of judgment will ever change a sinner's heart. But the love of Jesus will turn the hardest heart into a heart of flesh. The dying love of Christ on the cross will not only do that to soften a sinner's heart, but he will enable us then to be people that care about others. Isn't that interesting? Pharaoh doesn't even care about his own people. I want us to just consider this as we walk out tonight. First is that uh, we would reflect on the fact that God is a God of justice, that he is not just a God of mercy, that God is a holy God, that God has promised to punish all unrighteousness. And and yet, even in the judgments that he sends, God is showing that there is the hope of mercy. He is saying there is still time to trust in the Lord Jesus. There is still time to turn to him, to call on him while he's near, to seek him while he's near. Um, I want to encourage you as you think about those things. Are you looking at, God's work in the world and even what may be his judgments across the face of the earth. And are you reflecting on this is God extending the hope of mercy that men and women would turn to him? And then I want I want us to consider tonight. Do we reflect on the fact that all that God is doing, he is doing. As a revelation of his name in the earth, you know, at the end of the day, God wants Everyone to know who he is. Somebody said to me once, an unbeliever. What I, I can never worship a God that arrogant. And I said, look. I said, you're just a finite sinner and you want everybody to know who you are. And he was like, true. <laughs> so for the infinite God to want to make his name known in the earth is not only not wrong, it is right that his name would be exalted, and in all that he does, whether it's judgments or mercy, salvation or, or acts of justice, God is making his name known. He wants his name, his covenant name. He wants he wants the name of the triune God known throughout the earth, and God is going to be seen to be the God. Of heaven and earth, the true and living God over all the idols of the nations. And then I want us to consider that God is teaching us to view Him as the sustainer of all things. Do we recognize? Do we recognize that everything comes from Him, that we don't have anything on our own? I, I worked in a kitchen with a chef when I was 21 years old. And um, talking about the Bible with him once, and I said, Well, God gives you everything. And he said, No, I've worked for everything I have. Mm -hmm. And I said, Yeah, but you can't even breathe unless God lets you. And he was so livid. That's what people think. People think, I work for what I have. I remember Sinclair Ferguson saying once that many well off people think, I don't need to pray, give us this day our daily bread. I'll just go to the refrigerator and get what I want. And Ferguson said, the problem is you can't even get up and walk on your legs to the refrigerator unless God enables you to do that. We are absolutely dependent on him for everything. And then I would just encourage us to be asking the question, am I crying out to the Lord for a soft heart, a broken spirit and a contrite heart? And am I meditating on the dying love of Jesus, because at the end of the day, that is what is going to give us soft, broken, repentant hearts when we see the Son of God hanging on the tree because he loves you. He loved you to the end. And that we would say, Lord, give me a soft heart. Do not let me harden my heart in unbelief. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are the God of heaven and earth, we thank you that together with your son and your spirit, you are the righteous God who sends judgments and yet the God who extends offers of mercy and calls men and women and boys and girls to turn to you and to call on you and to turn from our sin and to trust in you. We do pray that you would help us to acknowledge you as such, to be committed to making your name known to those around us, to living in such a way that your name would be exalted. And Lord, we do pray that you would also make us to see that you are the God who gives us all things, that you are the God who gives us life and breath and all things, that everything comes from your hand and we can do nothing apart from you. And finally, Lord, we pray that you would give us soft hearts, that you would give us broken spirits and contrite hearts, that you would fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus and in seeing him nailed to the tree, that you would give us True brokenness over our sins and a desire to be close to you, to trust in you, to believe you, and to follow you. And so, Lord, would you do this and more for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.